Let's turn in our Bibles to chapter 32 of Jeremiah. We continue our series on Jeremiah. In uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Pilgrim is uh, taken captive in uh, the doubting castle of giant despair. And after he escapes through faith, using his key, why uh, Christian and hopeful erect a sign uh, to prevent other pilgrims from being taken captive by giant despair in Doubting Castle. And uh, it reads like this, Over this style is the way to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair, who despiseth the king of the celestial country, and seeketh to destroy his holy pilgrims. And uh, many would-be pilgrims have been destroyed through doubt the wrong handling of doubt. In this passage before us, we have Jeremiah, uh, our great lonely weeping prophet, as he's known, besieged by doubt. Uh, After his years of faithful service to the Lord and severe testing, the background historically is given to us in uh, chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. The siege of Jerusalem began in the ninth year of Zedekiah, and it continued for a year and a half. And right now, uh, the scene before us is within about four months of the fall of Jerusalem. For forty long years, this lonely prophet Jeremiah has been warning and sounding the note that if the nation does not repent and turn to God and obey his revealed will, that God is going to send the nation into captivity, destroy the city, destroy the temple. And there's been a hardening of heart all along. Uh, There's been a previous fall of the city when uh, the king of Babylon has come and taken some captives, but he didn't destroy the city. He set up puppet kings, but they have rebelled. And now this final king, Zedekiah, too, has rebelled against the king of Babylon. And... Nebuchadnezzar determines to demolish the city, take all of the people into exile. And uh, so we have the final siege of the city. Uh, Babylon has surrounded Jerusalem with its armies. It's taken all the surrounding land. It has its battering rams and its engines of war there. This is the situation. And in this uh, dark time, An instruction comes to Jeremiah which raises questions and doubts in his heart. First thing we have is the instruction to Jeremiah concerning buying a field in verses 6 and 7. 
And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is Anatol, for the right of redemption is thine to buy. Now, we need to understand that uh, Anatoth is part of that territory that's now occupied by the enemy. And there's a real slump in real estate prices in Anatoth right at this point. And uh, the word of the Lord, here's this formula that's used over and over and over. Uh, the authoritative communicated word of the Lord has come to Jeremiah. We don't know how it came. We're not told how it came. That's the formula that's used over and over in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came unto me, thus saith the Lord. And we're told in the New Testament, these men did not speak their own thoughts. Holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And no prophecy of old time is of any private interpretation. It wasn't their idea. But holy men of old spake and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There's that formula. The word of the Lord came unto me. But there's the content of the word, to buy the field. And that doesn't make sense. Why buy the field when the field is enemy territory now and it's valueless? The second thing that we have is the confirmation of the word by Hanamiel's coming. God had said, Hanamiel will come, and you're to buy the field, and now Hanamiel comes. In verse 8, So Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is in Anatol, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. The confirmation. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. That strikes us as strange. What do you mean? Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Didn't he already know? Was there any question when the word of God came to these prophets of old that God had spoken? The implication that could be drawn is that... uh, Well, uh, he just simply had an impression, and he wasn't at all sure that this impression was God's Word, and uh, then the impression is confirmed to be God's Word. G. Campbell Morgan, I think, uh, in spite of his generally tremendous interpretation of Scripture, treads uh, very dangerously around this passage as he says this indicates that actually God speaks today just as he spoke to those prophets of old. And when you and I have an impression from God, this is the way he spoke to them. And I say, that's a dangerous statement. No, when God spoke to these prophets of old, it was a unique coming of the word of the Lord. And God doesn't speak in that same fashion today. That's not to say that God doesn't give impressions today. And so does Satan. And you can't always tell where the impression's coming from when a thought comes into your mind or a concept or a feeling. 
or a passage of Scripture leaps out at you. It's easy to misread the will of God. When the word came to them, it was unique. I like Calvin's comments on this better. Calvin says, It may seem strange that the prophet says that he now knows that the word came from God. For if he before doubted, where would be the certainty as to the prophetic spirit? He had already received a vision. He ought to have embraced what he knew had been foretold to him from above, even without any hesitation. But it appears that he was in suspense and perplexity. But it is right, says Calvin, to distinguish between the knowledge received from the revelation of the Spirit and the experimental knowledge that he now receives. The prophet was confirmed in the certainty of his faith and in the thing itself. There is no inconsistency, for nothing is taken away from the credit and authority of God's Word when the reality and experience confirms us. And thus God often has a regard to the weakness of his people. Jeremiah then relied on God's oracle and was fully persuaded that he was directed from above to buy the field. But afterwards, when Hanamiel came to him, the event was, as it were, the sealing of the vision. Then the truth of God was more and more confirmed in the heart of the prophet. We see the instruction from God to buy the field, the confirmation by the coming of Hanamiel. Third, the transaction of the sale publicly according to instruction. In verse 9, And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anatoth, and weighed him the money, even seventeen shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money. In the balances. And verse 12, And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, in the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase, before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. As the transaction done publicly, and then the interpretation given publicly. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, which both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. That was the reason for this transaction. Another way of God speaking a word of comfort to this people in their time of distress concerning their future return from their land of exile and the repossession of the land. The point is that although Jeremiah had questions and he's perplexed, he obeys God. He buys the field. Business-wise, that was stupid. Christian-wise, that was the thing to do. The man of faith obeys God and buys the field. Uh, we read recently, uh, as a family, the book Born Again. I read it some years ago, but we read it carefully. And I uh, was struck with 
the statement that Doug Coe, a Christian who works discipling leaders in Washington, uh, Doug Coe, when he gave Chuck Colson a Bible after Colson had been led to Christ by a businessman, Tom Phillips, who stood up and shared his faith with Colson. Uh, Doug Coe wrote in the book, the Bible, as he gave it to Colson, better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. God's cause will ultimately succeed. Go ahead and buy your field in Anatol. Coe, Coe went ahead and did, humanly speaking, a stupid thing and bought a field in Anatol. And not Cole Colson. Colson, a time came when Colson, although innocent of the charges that were leveled against him, decided to plead guilty to charges that hadn't been brought against him, to write up an indictment against himself, plead guilty of the charge of defaming uh, a person, Ellsberg, and to plead guilty to that charge and to be sent to prison. And his reason was he felt that only as he did that could he really then be qualified to give an unashamed, clear-cut, keen-edged testimony publicly for the Lord Jesus Christ. That this would clear the slate clean. And so he obeyed what he felt the Spirit of God was leading him to do and, in effect, sent himself to prison voluntarily. He bought his field in Anatole. As a result, he was disbarred from practicing law. That didn't matter. Better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. We see the transaction as Jeremiah obeys the word of the Lord. Fourth, the question in Jeremiah's heart poured out to the Lord. In verse 16, uh, we have him uh, going to the Lord. It says, Now when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, now he voices his doubts to the Lord. Oz Guinness of Labrie fame, uh, a compatriot of Francis Schaeffer, and a writer a good bit along the same line as Schaeffer, in his book, In Two Minds, discusses the dilemma of doubt. Uh, the phrase, In Two Minds, comes from the biblical definition of doubt, a double-minded man. And he points out in handling doubt, we can be too hard on doubt, or we can be too soft on doubt. And doubt is not the same as unbelief. The opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's unbelief. But doubt can lead to unbelief if it's not rightly handled. And it's interesting to see how Jeremiah handles his doubt here. Notice when he voiced his doubt, after he had obeyed after he had publicly carried out without in any way publicly questioning God the instructions of the Lord. 
He obeyed. Then he voiced his doubts. Guinness points out that the best way to fight doubt is to have a healthy faith. Just like the best way to fight sickness is to maintain our health physically. And one of the keys in maintaining spiritual health is obedience to God's will. Obey the light that we have. Walk in the light and we'll receive more light. Notice not only when he voiced it, after he'd obeyed, but to whom and where he voiced his doubts. It says, I prayed unto the Lord. He voices his doubts not publicly before the people, but privately to the Lord. Again, that's the right way to handle doubt. Not that there's anything wrong with coming to someone for counsel and for help with doubts, but to parade our doubts publicly is wrong. G. Campbell Morgan says the distinction between the unbelief that dishonors God and the faith that asks questions we find right here, that it's voiced to God in the secret place. God is the answer to doubt, ultimately, as Guinness points out. Luther said, the Holy Spirit is not a skeptic. Go to God. Faith comes from God as a gift. And God is not only the author and giver of faith through his word and by his spirit, but he's also the resolver of doubt. He ultimately is the one to go to with our doubts. Notice how he voiced his doubts. We see to whom he voiced them. Notice how he voices them. He prays, and he prays, first of all, reverently, and reminding himself of God's attributes. In verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power, and stretched out thy arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give every one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. He reminds himself of God's attributes, who God is, what God is like, that he is the mighty God who created the universe. He commanded and it was done. He spake and it stood fast. Nothing is too great for him. Uh, he uh, brings this before himself, focusing on God and his power. That's the beginning of removing doubts. He reviews God's past performance and promise. Verse 20, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel, and among other men and hast made thee a name as at this day, and hast brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm and with great terror, and hast given them this land which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. He reviews God's past performance and promises, recounting his mighty deeds and his faithfulness. As he's doing this, he's restraining himself from voicing his doubts in a wrong way. 
Again, he voices them uh, in basic justification of God's dealings with the nation and in basic belief. He says, and uh, verse 23, And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the mounts, they are come unto the city to take it. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. What thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. There's his focusing on God and restraining himself from voicing his doubts in a wrong way. But then he voices his doubt. In verse 25, And thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, Buy thee the field for money, and take witnesses, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. He said, that doesn't make sense. I just don't understand. Now, he started off, in a sense, by saying, Lord, nothing is too hard for thee. And he keeps reminding himself of that. But then he comes back and says, Lord, this seems too hard for thee. I, I just can't understand how... With all this destruction and waste and this army and the city to be destroyed, how it can ever be that this land will be of value again and that we really will repossess it. It just doesn't seem possible. And notice that he voiced this doubt. That's important. It's important that as we voice it, we suspend judgment. And he suspends judgment. He just raises a question. He says, I don't understand. Lord, please explain. He doesn't say, Lord, that's wrong. Lord, you are wrong. What you've done is not right. He doesn't pass judgment. He suspends judgment. He just says, I don't understand. Uh, Matthew Henry says, Though we are bound to follow God with an implicit obedience, yet we should endeavor that it may be more and more intelligent obedience. We must never dispute God's judgments, but we may inquire. You know, doubts can serve a healthy purpose. They can act as a sparring partner for faith and shape our faith up, separate truth from error about our faith, make our faith lean and hard. They can be a sparring partner, or they can be deadly. A little doubt can be like an inoculation that helps, but too much doubt can be like a deadly poison that hurts. In his book, In Two Minds, uh, Guinness lists seven deadly doubts that can be very harmful if we don't handle them correctly. First is the doubt that comes from ingratitude. Uh, in the anthem that was sung, The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. That ought to be the continuing echo of our heart. Augustine said that you ought to be able to describe a Christian as a hallelujah from head to foot. But, you know, it's... It's easy to, after a while, forget what tremendous things God has done for you. 
particularly maybe if you if you grew up and you were surrounded by a Christian environment and have been somewhat sheltered. And you never were really in the world in all of the awfulness that that involves. You never really knew the deep, deep degradation of sin, the slamminess of it, the terrible load of guilt that you lug around with you. And that freedom that came when you knew you were forgiven through the blood of Christ, His death for your sin. And the freedom that came when for the first time in your life, due to the power of the Spirit of God now coming to dwell within as part of that new covenant, you were able to deal with sin. You were able to quit your foul mouth talk and your foul behavior that was worse than your mouth. You see, if you've never really experienced that, it's awfully easy to use the terminology of Christianity and to speak of being born again and quickened when you were dead in trespass and sin, but it's not too real to you. Not real like it was to John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He'd been a slaver. Matter of fact, he'd been a slave for a period of time. And he knew, but he didn't ever want to let himself forget it. And he, right in his, in his living room there, he put over his mantelpiece a great sign, Remember thou wast a bondman. In the land of Egypt. Doubts that arise from ingratitude, forgetting what God has done. Doubts that arise from a faulty view of God, an inadequate view of God. Your God is too small, or an incorrect view of God. Uh, God would never do thus and so. Many people become Christians, and they've never really wrestled with the character of God and His holiness and His all-controlling nature, that His providence controls all. And then they encounter babies that are born deformed. And all of a sudden they read in the scriptures that God had something to do with that. That nothing takes part. Who made the deaf and the dumb and the seeing and the blind? Have not I the Lord? And they can't take it. That God can't be their God if God would do that. Or they encounter the doctrine of election in scripture. And they're stumbled. They don't want God to be God. And they have doubts from a faulty view of God, or doubt from weak foundations. They don't have any real biblical foundations. They don't know the great evidence for the truth of Christianity, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the evidence of the inspiration of Scripture, such as prophecy, the fantastic evidence for the truth of Christianity. They've never really studied. And so someone comes along and begins to poke fun at it and throws in a few questions and they collapse. No adequate foundation for faith. Doubts from a lack of commitment. Or oh, they became some kind of a Christian or said they did. But it was the popular thing to do. But then persecution arose. And they decided it wasn't too fashionable, and they gave it up. A lack of commitment, no real commitment. If you're not prepared to believe in Christianity, if all the world disbelieves, then you're not committed. That kind of commitment. Though no one join me, yet still I'll follow. No turning back, no turning back. Both hands on the plow burn my bridges behind me. 
doubts that arise from a lack of growth. C.S. Lewis says most, if you were to check a hundred people who, quote, gave up their Christianity, you'd find that most of them were not reasoned out of it. They drifted away from it. Not to grow. Not to keep faith in trim, fighting form. is to drift away. Doubt from unruly emotions, like Elijah when he fled from Jezebel and he was weary and tired and his emotions got the best of him and he wanted to quit. Doubts from a really emotion. Do you remember the solution to that when we looked at a little early in our study of Jeremiah's? Martin Lloyd-Jones says you have to quit listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is my help and the health of my countenance. And doubt from fearing to believe. Someone maybe has an old scar. His daddy didn't love him and he's afraid to believe that God would love him. Or he trusted someone else and they let him down. Now he can't trust anyone. The disciples, it says, didn't believe in the resurrection because of joy. They disbelieved for joy. It was too good to be true for a while. These can be deadly doubts, if not handled correctly, and each has its own prescription, as you can get some feel as we've touched on them. But there's something of a general approach that we pick up here. It's all right to come and to spread our questions, but we've got to suspend judgment. And we've got to trust God. Uh, in his book, In Two Minds, Guinness uses illustration of a resistance fighter in an occupied country where the enemy forces have occupied it, but there's an underground uh, resistance force. And one night a stranger comes to the, one of the members of this resistance party, and he says, look, I'm really on your side, and I'm really the leader of the resistance. You haven't known me before, but I really am. And that night as they talk, the resistance fighter becomes persuaded that this stranger is sincere, that he really is on their side, that he can be trusted, and that he is their friend, their great friend. But then that's the only intimate contact he has with the stranger. And as the days go on and the fight goes on, why sometimes this stranger is seen uh, helping in various ways the resistance movement, but sometimes he's seen turning over resistance fighters, wearing the uniform of a policeman maybe, and doing things that seem inconsistent with the good of the resistance. And, and when that happens, the other resistance fighters say to this resistance fighter who knows him, they say, you can't trust him. He said, yes, you can. He's one of us. And yet it seems so strange. Sometimes he, he'll ask this stranger for help, and he'll receive it. But other times he asks, and he doesn't receive it. And he says, well, the stranger knows best. He says, that's something of the position we're in. And uh, he says, is God really on our side? Why does he sometimes appear to be flying the wrong flag? Surely we cannot only trust. Can't we also know? He says, this is where the principle of suspended judgment operates. Face to face with mystery, and especially the mystery of evil. The faith that understands why it has come to trust 
must trust where it had not, has not come to understand. You understand why you trust, but you don't understand what's happening right at this point. The resistance leader knows best. He can be trusted through thick and thin, since he's not a stranger, but a friend. Two aspects of suspending judgment must be emphasized. The first is that it should never be confused with an embargo on asking questions. There's nothing wrong with raising questions, just like Jeremiah does here. Uh, pursuing possible answers, searching for evidence, all these are processes of thought which stop short of making judgments. Notice also how it is that the fallacy of making an unfounded judgment grows into the blasphemy of making a judgment on God. And he refers to something that C.S. Lewis wrote. As C.S. Lewis observed his wife dying slowly by cancer, he wrote, uh, his book on grief, A Grief Observed. And in this he says, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. There we make a judgment on God. Doubt led to doing that, if we're not careful. It says there are two situations that make it especially difficult to suspend judgment. One is when we're suffering. The second is when it seems that God is not guiding us. The pressure is painful because of a feeling that God is not guiding us at the very moment when so much is at stake. Here, faith may have to suspend judgment on what God is doing. Faith may not know why, but it knows why it trusts God who knows why. Faith may be in the dark about guidance, but it's never in the dark about God. What God is doing may be mystery, but who God is is not. So faith can remain itself and retain its integrity by suspending judgment. And that's exactly what Jeremiah does here. And let's notice how God answers Jeremiah. We've seen his question, now finally the reiteration by the Lord of his power and promise. In verse 26, Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying... And the first thing that he does is reiterate his power. Jeremiah had said, Nothing is too hard for the Lord, but then he almost wound up saying, But this seems to be too hard for the Lord. In verse 27... Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God says, Jeremiah, you answered your own question. It's not too hard for me. Nothing is too hard for me. The reiteration of his power, the reiteration of his punishment, Jeremiah, this doesn't mean that I'm not going to go through with the punishment they deserve. And he spells that out in verses 29 to 35. And then in uh, verse 36 following, we have the reiteration of the promise of return. Verse 36, And now therefore thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, whereof ye say, It shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, and by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries whither I have driven them in mine anger, and in my fury, and in my great wrath. 
and I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. What's that? As the great covenant formula again. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Verse 43, Fields shall be brought, bought in this land whereof ye say it is desolate. 44, Men shall buy fields for money and subscribe evidences and seal them. He says, nothing is too great for me, Jeremiah, and I will do it. Trust me. But you notice then the formula that he gives, he passes over from just the promise of return to that land and the buying and selling of property in that land to under the figure of the land and the symbol of the land, speak of that much greater promise. He wasn't promising just fields and vineyards. We have here again the repetition of the new covenant that we saw in the 31st chapter. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. He talked about, they will be my people, I will be their God. The new revelation that he would give to them through the Spirit, the new inscription of the law on their heart, it's all here again. That I will uh, put my fear in their hearts. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. In other words, this is that covenant that we live under that deals with the true Israelite, all those who trust in Jesus Christ, who have a faith like Abraham's faith, that great promise of God being your God and giving you an eternal inheritance, changing you, giving you his spirit within, a new relation to himself, a new revelation of himself. What a tremendous thing. And of course it was fulfilled. You're doubting? You're struggling with doubts? How are you handling those doubts? Are you passing judgment on God? Or are you raising the questions, going to God with the questions? And not passing judgment, but suspending judgment. Trusting Him. Knowing Him as the friend through Christ whom you can trust, knowing why you can trust him, even when you don't know what he's doing or why he's doing. Have you entered into that covenant? Are you one of those true Israelites to whom that covenant applies? Are you afraid to really commit yourself? Are you afraid to make that no-turning-back commitment to Jesus Christ? That doubt is the easy way out. You've never really made that commitment. No wonder you doubt. Why not today make that no-holds-barred commitment to Jesus Christ, who is no stranger, really, because he became man and walked among us, died for us, rose from the dead, offers himself to you. Why not today make that commitment and surrender to him and trust him? Ask him to give you faith. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, if as a Christian you have had doubts, 
Why not do as Jeremiah did and take them to the Lord? Ask him to resolve them. Do it in reverence. Do it in review of his mighty things that he has done for you. Uh, Do it with restraint, but bring them before him, not passing judgment, but asking for resolving of your doubts. And if you've never really made that commitment, why not right now make it? Pray in your heart, Lord Jesus, I understand why I have doubts, because I've held back from a real commitment, a real surrender, a real burn my bridge behind me, giving of myself to you. Lord, I no longer hold back. I receive a master. I become a slave. I trust your redeeming blood for my salvation. Come into my life. Enter into that new covenant with me even now. For Jesus' sake. Amen.